Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. For this podcast, we are doing something a bit different. We're joined by Judd Spicer. Judd is one of our contributing writers, and he's written a number of fascinating stories for us in 2018, including our November cover story about the challenges of maintaining and operating golf courses at extreme elevations. So this was a lot of fun to get Judd to join us. Judd's been a writer for a long time. He lives in the Coachella Valley of California, and he's told a number of different stories for a number of different outlets, and we're glad that he is on board with us at GCI, and I think you'll learn a lot about the storytelling and writing process and also about some of the agronomics and people of the places that Judd's visited this year. Well, Judd, it's awesome to have you on the, the podcast. I know people have been reading your stories all year and they've been excellent stories. But the first thing I want to ask you is you're a Twin Cities native living in the Coachella Valley of California. How do you feel each fall and winter when it's really cold back home and very comfortable where you live now? Thanks for having me, Guy. And uh, let me say it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to write uh, for you guys and work with you guys. Uh, as far as the fall and winter, it's kind of two different animals because here in the Coachella Valley, it's still pretty damn hot. Come like September or early October, we're still well into the uh, triple digits, and that makes me miss the Twin Cities and the changing of the seasons, um, the leaves, and you kind of get that nice crisp weather. But once we're in the season that we are now, once Thanksgiving about to hit, uh, about to hit rather, uh, and it gets into the single digits in the Twin Cities, and it's absolutely idyllic out here in the Southern California desert. It's one of the best places to be in the country. You've been out there for a while now. What were some of the adjustments going from the Upper Midwest to the California desert for you personally? Uh, golf adjustments or personal adjustments? I guess both, yeah. It's a completely different style of golf course in the way you play golf and the way you view golf. I guess from a personal standpoint, and I've been out here eight years now, it's a little different. Um, I know that you spent some, some time uh, in the Midwest, and there's there's a folksiness to the Midwest, which uh, admittedly I do miss sometimes. Here in Southern California, sometimes I, I refer to it as the no-nod. You get no nod. Like when you walk down the street in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I'm from, just walk by a stranger, you always get the nod. In Southern California, no nod. However, from a golf vantage, I feel like I probably shaved about nine shots off my handicap since moving out here. It's just the ability to play more. I used to itch in Jones Guy during the winter months and just literally swing a wedge. Like so many Midwesterners, I just do it in my living room and just get so antsy to be able to play. And now it's an acquired taste to play in 108-degree heat, but I basically play all year round. And I think my golf game still not that great. Got it down to about a 9 or 10, but definitely reflected being able to play more. We're recording this podcast in November, which means that the peak golf season in the Coachella Valley is approaching, and I believe the locals out there call it the season. What's the buzz like when you know that the season's getting close and more people are going to be coming to town, playing golf, and living in the area? It's an adjustment. Um, like I said, you know, playing in those hotter temperatures, you get a little spoiled, in a sense, where you get used to playing three-hour rounds. But once January 1 hits out here in the desert, and yeah, it is the season, the high season or the peak season, it's busy, man. 
and uh, we're still in those winter hours, so there's so only so many daylight hours. I'm happy for the courses that they're making their money. Uh, golf here in the high season at uh, the top public venues, there's still a din of activity. It still seems very healthy to me, so instead of playing golf in three hours and 15 minutes, you're kind of hanging out for about four and a half hours, to be perfectly candid. Right now, it's kind of an interesting little pocket that I've learned since moving out here. People kind of filter in, whether it be from my native Minnesota, whether they're the Canadian snowbirds, Wisconsin, what have you. And then as we near Thanksgiving, they all kind of go back home. So it makes December uh, a sneaky month, and I, I almost don't want to give that away. It's like it's a little secret out here in the desert is that all the courses are open. They've opened from overseed. The weather is perfect, and it can be kind of quiet. So you can get this month of December where all the snowbirds are gone, and you can really play a lot of golf courses in a very timely manner, in perfect condition, in perfect weather, and then come the new year, they all flock back. I think after we record this podcast, I'm going to go back to my desk and uh, book a flight out to uh, Palm Springs <laughs> <laughs> for next month. I, I, never, I never realized that about your market. But speaking of the Coachella Valley market, what are some things you're seeing when you visit facilities? Are they investing in infrastructure? Are they investing in people? Like, how would you characterize the market right now in 2018? Sure. I don't want you to think this is a, a dower or concerning commentary on golf. I was actually just working on a story this morning. Uh, I was at a golf event last week. These are two separate facilities that I'm referring to in the Coachella Valley. And both the article I was working on today and the function I went to last week were in relation to enhancements at excellent golf properties that basically had nothing to do with golf. The function that I'm referencing, Guy, was at uh, PGA West. You're familiar, the Western Home of Golf in America, uh, host in part, uh, or the host site, I should say, to the, to the Desert Classic. Of course, that's played across the rotation of three different courses, including historic La Quinta Country Club. But they just built this awesome new sports facility on their property. It's membership-based, and it's got swimming pools. It's got bocce balls. It's got, like, a yoga studio. It's got a bar. And it's an awesome facility, man. But you're essentially, I kind of scratched my head a little bit thinking, well, I'm at the Western Home of Golf in America, and here is a new augment to the property which really has nothing to do with golf. As far as the article I was working on this morning, this is something that's pretty awesome. It's at a true managed property, Indian Wells Golf Resort, one of the best municipal properties in the entire West, if not the entire country, home to two terrific golf courses, one John Foat design, one Clive Clark design. And last month, in October of 18, they opened something called Shops in the Night. I actually had the pleasure to write about this three times now, where basically at 5 o'clock, once the sun has gone down, they have created this festive social scene atmosphere where they have these, like, uh, black-lit glow-in-the-dark balls on the driving range that you hit into these massive targets. They have this putting thing where it's like lasers, where you play games uh, like horse or cornhole or shuffleboard off of an iPad and the lasers kind of control the game and the results. Uh, they got like a food truck, they got cocktails. So I'm seeing these golf properties invest, and 
seemingly to great popularity in these enhancements that aren't attracting the core golfers, but they're getting people on their facility. And to me, ultimately, that's a good thing. I don't know if for you you find that concerning that this money is not be putting, being put into golf courses, but for me, ultimately, if it's going to bring people to a facility, I see it as a good thing. Are there any new courses being constructed right now in your area? Uh, no, there's not. Uh, there have been some other courses that have had uh, their own site enhancements or they've had some tweaks, but I think, hey, I mean, this is a golf-rich environment we're in here. There's 120 courses in a very small pocket of the country, a seasonal pocket of the country. There have been some courses that have gone away, but I, I honestly don't see the need for any more golf courses to be built here in the Coachella Valley. One of your first assignments for GCI earlier this year was about golf in the desert, and that story compared some of the challenges superintendents face in the Coachella Valley compared to some of the challenges that superintendents face in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. What did you learn when working on that story, and how would you characterize the differences between those two deserts where lots and lots of golf is played? I didn't find as many differences, perhaps, as, as I'd hoped to find. There are two different styles of golf, I think, which is why I expected to, to learn some different things. But what I, what I namely found, and this is something I kind of scratched the surface with in, in past articles, but when working for you guys, I felt as though I really confirmed it, is that golf in our desert is becoming more like golf in their desert, which, for lack of a, a different phrase, target golf, in some respects, that's another thing we've, we've, we've seen out here in recent years. I know that you've been here, and uh, you probably caught on to the, uh, the golf and water task forces being uh, established, and now for some years here in Southern California, not just the desert, but basically there's uh, um, turf removal programs, and there's uh, some state money that has been raised, um, like out here in the desert, it's about 1500 bucks per acre removed. I'm not sure if that's something that's going to be offered again in 2019. But, yeah, I've started to see more and more courses take advantage of that, replace that with desert scaping. So is it kind of a targety golf, like more so that you see in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area? And some courses out here, yes. I mean, some people took advantage of getting rid of as many acres as possible. Not everybody is a fan about that. And there's also the perspective of homeowners and needing to sate homeowners, some of which specifically moved out here to the Coachella Valley for the reason that there's wall-to-wall grass. And it doesn't make everybody happy when you're taking out that turf and replacing it with a, with a brown desert scaping that is not as aesthetically pleasing to all parties. You're kind of a neutral observer in the whole thing, I mean, you're, you're from a different part of the country. Do you feel like the mentality is flipping a bit? Mm, not really. Not really. I think that historically, from a, an optical standpoint, that is what people dig about golf in the desert. You know, that's what they bought into, the palm trees, the wall-to-wall grass. Uh, but when speaking with agronomists out here and speaking with people that live and breathe this every day, yeah, the, the aquifer underneath the desert reportedly has like trillions like literally trillions of gallons of water left but there's been some incredible research uh the 
Desert Sun newspaper in recent years did some really impressive research investigating the wells. And yeah, I mean, there's more people out here using up more of this water. Has it made a colossal dent? Maybe not yet, but it has made a substantial dent. Um, so there's only so much water. I mean, it rains out here heavily like once or twice a year, man. So it's not like there's all this water that's replenished. And even when it does rain heavy like that, I'm not a scientist, but I only know that only a certain portion of it actually refurbishes the aquifer. So I think people still want that wall-to-wall grass. Um, I don't think that expectation has changed, but people will need it to change. 20 years from now, a lot of the courses are going to look like, I referenced PGA West, one of the courses there, the Greg Norman course, they're serious dearth of turf. It's got like 80 acres of grass, which is more so what you probably see commensurate with a, a Scottsdale or Phoenix course. I think a lot of the courses are going to look like that 20 years from now, maybe even 10. Judd, this is your first full year contributing to GCI. What have you learned this year about superintendents and agronomy that maybe you didn't know before you started writing for us? Prior to the opportunities to write for you guys, I mean, I'm happy to say that I, I, I dabbled on occasion, working with the agronomists, working with the superintendents. Obviously, the articles for you guys have had a far greater focus on that. So historically, I kind of felt like I already had some knowledge, but certainly with an enhanced focus on that, more so guy, a confirmation of that knowledge, that these guys, they're interesting people. They're a little different, and they're all extremely smart. And I'm not sure if that's what your impression is, that these guys, they, they think a little bit differently, but they're all extremely smart, and they kind of like working in the backdrop. They don't always necessarily want to be the face of a course or the face of a company. A lot of them are kind of happy waking up at 4.30 in the morning or 4 in the morning and doing their thing. Yeah, and I'm kind of like you, Judd. I, I've covered a variety of sports and a variety of topics and I've been fortunate to go to a lot of places and see a lot of different things in my career. And I tell people that golf course superintendents are among the most fascinating people I've ever dealt with, if not the most fascinating people I've ever dealt with, just because of the diversity of skills they have. Yeah, absolutely. And um, do you share that impression that uh, and these, are, these are interesting people? Like you said, it's, uh, it's a diverse skill set. That they, that they like to have, but would you say, in your experience, these men, or hopefully in some cases uh, these women as well, that uh, they, they kind of like doing their own thing. Like they, they like those early hours, and they like being out in nature, and they probably enjoy that more maybe than sitting down with you or I. I think it's the whole humility thing, because so many things in the golf business can humble you. The, the weather can humble you very quickly. People can humble you very quickly, whether it's uh, the people that work for you or your members or customers. So there's just so many uncontrollable factors that make the job tough. And, yeah, I would say that they're a little bit shy about telling their story at first because of that humbleness. But then once you get to them and once you talk to them face-to-face, you realize they have an incredible story to tell, and they're pretty damn good at telling it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Really, some of my favorite interviews in golf and had the pleasure of doing this for a long time have come from the behind the scenes folks and a lot of times those have been the superintendents or the agronomists chances are by and large as you said we've both done 
a lot of different types of sports writing and golf writing, or you're going to have a far more interesting conversation with the head superintendent than you are with the guy that just came in sixth place in a professional golf tournament. Speaking of interesting, you wrote our November cover story, which is about the challenges of maintaining and operating golf courses at extreme altitudes. What led you to this story, and what surprised you when you were talking with the superintendents and general managers and directors of golf at Sierra Star and Bear Mountain, which are two courses California? One of the, my favorite things about having relocated out to, uh, out to California is the diversity of the terrain. And that might sound obvious or trite, but really from here in Southern California, yeah, I'm in a desert setting. But whether it be driving a couple hours to Big Bear, uh, where you're going to climb to 7,000 feet, or a couple hours to Los Angeles, or a couple hours south, I mean, there are so many different types of geography within a few hundred miles that I really dig that. I mean, the, the desert can look a little brown when you're here every day for a couple months, so the ability to just get in the car and drive to some of these other places within a day is really one of my favorite parts of having moved here. As far as these elevated courses, um, definitely different. Uh, the Bear Mountain, well, yeah, I'll say this first guy. I mean, they're both far, I think, better known as ski destinations. Certainly Mammoth Mountain, uh, where Sierra Star is played, and that's the highest uh, elevated course in uh, California, certainly one of the highest uh, in the country as well. Um, that's a real deal golf course. That is not an easy golf course, Sierra Star. Bear Mountain is a, is a nine-hole course. It's actually been around for a long, long time, kind of a rugged setting, more of a, a family-type setting. We're like, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're up here in Big Bear for the weekend. What are we going to go? Let's go putt around the golf course maybe. Uh, doesn't mean that it's not fun. Uh, certainly, as uh, I'm sure most of your listeners know, when you're up there at seven, 8,000 feet, there's definitely some clubbing selection that takes place, which is, to me is, is really fun. You know, when you hit an 8-iron 190 yards, it's a little different style of golf. Um, there's a couple cool holes, certainly at, at Bear Mountain, where they have some elevated tee boxes, and you get a driver up in the sky, man, and you're just, like, craning your neck. Seemingly, it's just, <laughs> it's just sitting up there in the sky forever. And it's cool just to watch your ball just float around up there. You can really tell the elevation. As far as working on the article for you and digging into the business of operating these courses, the seasons are so short, man. I think Sierra Star, we referenced in the article, they have not 15,000 rounds, 15,000 starts per year. And I think that's just, you know, that includes, like, people going out to play six holes, going out to play nine holes. But you better get it right, man. You better get it right. I mean, the seasons are so small, and the preparation windows are so tight, and this goes for both courses, that if you putz around or you miss something or it gets into that snow mold, you threaten to cut off maybe upwards of, like, 10 or 15 part, uh, percent, rather, of a very finite golf season. So you better be prepared. You better get it right the first time. It's the first time I'd ever seen the term starts used to describe the volume of activity at a golf course. We always use rounds to class, classify it. 
Had you heard that term before? And what were your thoughts when, I believe it was the general manager at one of the courses, called them starts instead of rounds? I thought that was a pretty innovative way of looking at it. Yeah, I think that was a little fun with language, maybe boosting that number a little bit. But kind of goes back to the beginning of our chat guy. I mean, it is a changing face of golf. And, heck, if people want to come and play six holes, if they want to play nine holes, I mean, what do you care? What do I care? At least they're still playing golf. At least they're still out there with their clubs. They're getting money in these courses' hand, uh, hands. rather. They're keeping the courses open. So if he wants to use that phrase instead of a more traditional phrase, and they can perhaps feel a little bit better about how many people are playing the course, so be it. Another place where the window of golf activity is pretty short is your hometown. And you got to return to Minnesota this year to work on a story about TPC Twin Cities, and I believe Minnesota's got the highest golf participation rate in the country. How cool was it to go home and report on a golf course that is going to be hosting the PGA Tour's return to Minnesota, and what type of excitement do you sense with the uh, tour coming to TPC Twin Cities next year? Well, this article was pretty sweet to work on. I mean, for me, on a personal level, it was it was coming full circle a bit. It was saying that, you know, I, I might be a knucklehead in several different ways guy, but at least I've done something right in my career and my life to have <laughs> been able to come home and do a story like this for you guys and do it on, uh, you know, a, a pretty substantial scale. It's an article that I know when I do an article for you that a lot of people are going to see it. Um, and so it made me personally proud to be able to go back to uh, my hometown and be able to do this on the precipice of a big event. I mean, it's been since like the late 1960s that the Twin Cities market, uh, which as you reference, is a, is a rabid golf market, which um, has been a regular PGA Tour stop. So referencing the uh, elevated courses, you know, Minnesota, very extreme winters, so their window was also really tight. So when I was out there, uh, not a, a ton of work. I think they're calling them competitive enhancements. You know, people like to find their, their language to serve their project. But the ones they were doing, they were, uh, they were getting in the dirt, and they were doing it fast. And uh, they needed to get all this done. I, I was shocked at how small the window was to do this and to be able to do it right. Uh, the real other interesting thing that I found about this, and, and I didn't, I didn't get this these answers from reading other articles about uh, the change from the uh, the 3M Championship to the 3M Open, and a lot of this was coming from uh, from Hollis Kavner, who's a great guy, interesting guy at uh, ProLink Sports. Uh, he'll be running this tournament as he had the 3M Championship, was that they've been playing this for a long time. I mean, he told me it was like eight years since they first put in a letter to the PGA Tour. I think a lot of people have the sense that maybe this took, you know, a year or two to get ready for this transition, but it's been a long time planning, and I think the desire for the 3M company to extend their reach to make it more global um, was earnest, and so they were really all in. I feel like once the tournament comes back around, are, are they going to get, I'd like to say we, but I don't live there anymore, are they going to get the same kind of vehement attendance that they've uh, enjoyed, say, at the Ryder Cup in 2016? 
I certainly hope so. Uh, the 4th of July timing, I know that they're going to do it upright, and I'll have all the fireworks and I'll have all the bells and whistles. But as we see out here with the Desert Classic and the PGA Tour's annual stop that's come here now for 60 consecutive years, you got to get some players, man. And I know that there'll be some, some Midwesterners, whether that be Zach Johnson, whether that be Steve Stricker, whether that be Tom Lehman, who initially designed this course in concert with Arnold Palmer and is now has his hand in these competitive enhancements. they got to get some players out of your tournament. And so for me, that's a little bit of a concern. I mean, the tournament that used to be on this weekend, uh, the Greenbrier, did they have an awesome field? Meh, they're kind of middle-of-the-road field. I mean, let's be honest. So can the 3M open better than what the Greenbrier had in West Virginia? I certainly hope so, man, because really you got to get some players out there. Actually, I have personal experience with the, the Greenbrier. I spent the whole tournament week there last year and this year volunteering on the maintenance crew, and it was a awesome event, very quaint setting in southern West Virginia, but it had some challenges because it was two weeks before the Open Championship, so a lot of the players were already headed overseas to get practice rounds in and get ready for that. But yeah, it, it, it's a big deal when a town gets a PGA Tour event, and I'm sure the, the Twin Cities will embrace it. And one other thing about TPC Twin Cities, Judd, is that the superintendent there, Mark Michalski, had replaced a legend in Roger Stewart. What was it like meeting Mark, and how awesome of a guy was he to deal with? Uh, he's a great guy, and uh, he's a young guy as well. And not only did he confirm the things I heard about uh, Roger and Roger's uh, really legendary career as uh, uh, somebody that paid a lot of uh, attention probably earlier than most to environmental stewardship, but just from a pure managerial standpoint, and this extends golf course maintenance, this would uh, apply for any job leadership role. I mean, basically what Mark told me about Roger is that Roger let Mark be hands-on, and he let him learn and make mistakes hands-on. You know, he didn't, he didn't preach or just point out. I mean, he let him do the work himself, and... Now that Mark has stepped into this lead role, you know, he's been fully enabled to to lead the show and really, really primed for that. And to me, that just, that just said a lot about a managerial style that Roger had. The other thing that, uh, that Mark told me, and this was something that I would hope that he would say, because we find so much in golf that golf can be a small world. I don't know if, that's, if you'd agree with me on that, but it's pretty easy to cross paths with people. Smaller world than, than you might think sometimes. But uh, he told me that a lot of his colleagues, the TPC Network, he referenced uh, TPC Deer Run, TPC Boston, uh, TPC Potomac, TPC Sawgrass. You know, he reached out to the other fellows at those courses, and he picked their brains. Not so much when it came to competitive enhancements or maybe even the turf itself, but just being properly prepared for the PGA Tour coming to town. Boy, we've made it close to a half hour into this podcast, and we haven't talked about Ireland yet. You got to go to Ireland this year and experience some different types of golf courses. What was that trip like? And in your own words, how would you compare the style of golf you saw over there and the golf course maintenance you saw over there compared to what we have back here in the United States? Well, from a pure golf perspective, Guy, I would say that anybody 
that takes a trip out there with clubs in tow, you're going to learn a lot about your golf game. Um, you really need to, uh, you got to control your golf ball, man. You can't just slide it up there with the lofted iron, hit something, hope that it, it lands well and you get up and down. I, I did not make a lot of pars during my Ireland trip. We played six courses in six consecutive days, walked every time, and I made a lot of fives because uh, those second shots, you really got to be precise, and then working around the greens, you know, the thing, the saying is old, but um, <clears throat> it's worth repeating that golf in the United States is played in the air. Golf in Europe is played more so on the ground. You need, need to know how to play your ball on the ground. Um, we had a fascinating time there. I really do feel like it is for the ardent golfer, and I don't want to sway people that maybe have had this as a dream trip, but I, I, I don't think that if you went there with, um, it's just one example, let's say you and your, your gal, you and your spouse, you and your boyfriend, whomever, want to go out and have this kind of leisurely round, I don't know if Ireland is really for you. I mean, a lot of these courses were pretty hard, man, and you got to golf your ball. Um, when, uh, when we went there, it was super interesting timing because, as discussed, and this is why it was really good timing to do this article, um, we're coming off, pardon me, some historically dry, uh, historically dry season. So we played some bone-dry golf courses. I mean, these things were beyond golden brown into basic dormancy. So I ended up playing like a lot of five irons off the tee because your ball would roll and bound forever. You didn't even need to take out the big stick to pop it out there. Uh, and while we were there, I mean, that weather finally broke, and they told me, some of the course managers, that there'll be some crazy Americans just like us, that they want that Irish golf experience. So when we were out there, uh, <laughs> we played... Two consecutive rounds in basically totally torrential downpour where no one that lived there in their right mind would go out and play golf. But there was one of the courses, um, I don't know if i got a few extra minutes on this guy to kind of spin a yarn for you. Is that okay? Keep going. Hey, we're I, podcasting, uh, man. This isn't a radio show. We don't, we don't <laughs> have to break for ads or wait for the next program to begin. That's right. I'm so used to... Uh, doing the radio where we are put in that box um which is fine you know it keeps us keeps us on task but uh <laughs> sometimes you gotta put the clamp down on, on the storytelling uh one of the courses we went to and again it had been totally dry historically dry and we went to one of the courses i feel like it was i gotta i might have to check my own uh my own article here it's been uh, a few months but i think it was uh killarney the Killarney Golf and Fishing Club. I had not been feeling particularly well the day previous. Um, I don't know when you do these travels. When I do them, sometimes I get a little sensitive stomach. I always got a lot of uh, tums in tow. But I kind of blied some of my own rules the day previous. Ate stuff that was a little aggressive for me and uh, wasn't feeling super hot, man. Didn't go out with the crew dinner that evening 
And then on the next day, we arrived at uh, this Killarney Golf and Fishing Club, and they were out for us, man. Like they were out in their uh, their their crested coats to welcome us. Um, it was it was a real honor, you know. Like the club president and uh, the women's club president, they were there to to acknowledge our group. And right when we got there, it kind of started raining. We went inside for a little pre-round handshake and uh, discussed the course and the property and the history with some of these folks. And I just kind of settled up to the bar, feeling a, a little, little, little peakish. And the club president, who was like the most Irish guy ever, like even the Irish guys probably thought this guy was really Irish. He kind of... He came over to me. He's like, oh, you're talking like this. So like and I'm not trying to mock him. He couldn't have been nicer. But he was so Irish I could barely understand what he was saying until he asked me if you know I wanted to wanted a drink before the round. And I just said, sir, I, I think I'm just having a water. I, I'm sorry. I'm just not feeling super hot. Um, and the next thing I know, I had a snifter like a fishbowl of brandy in front of me. And he took his down like he was drinking orange juice and i was like yeah all right you know you can't can't go all the way you know halfway across the world and (laughs) you don't want them to speak ill of you you don't want to uh disrupt a a kindness so i joined him and uh thanked him very much started to kind of feel my body come back to life a little bit kind of started to get up it's like oh you can't have one john you gotta have another and soon enough there was another sniffer of brandy about the size of a fishbowl, and he threw his down like it was nothing, man. It's like 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> and him again, like a glass of orange juice for me, I was like, all right, man, just throw it down. And stood up, a little wobbly, nothing in my stomach, and we literally walked directly out to the first tee where it was a torrential downpour from the first tee, and somehow, with all this in my belly, uh, I hit like one of the greatest tee shots of my entire six-round trip. Striped it like 280 right down the middle. They all kind of clapped, and then they ran inside, and we slugged it out for four hours in a torrential downpour to the point where we finally slugged our way up to 18. We went for the traditional handshake, uh, got rid of our caps, and our trip host, this great Irish guy named Rory, he's like, "Now, gents." No, and we went in for the hug. There are so many things that are like beautiful about that story, and so many things that are wrong about that story. It makes me <laughs> it makes me realize how boring I am when I'm on the road, and I'm more worried about taking pictures and interviewing people and taking notes and tweeting than I am about my shots or hanging out by the bar. Wow, you just made me realize how boring I am. But I think that kind of leads into my next question, Judd. What do you remember when you're gone more or when you're reporting for these stories? Do you remember the landscapes or do you remember the people more? Uh, that's a great question, Guy. And I balance that out, I think, when I leave every trip. For me, it's, it's the landscapes. And that is no slight that people have been so kind with their time and their voices and their words over the years. And when I talk about the landscapes, I'm not even talking about the golf, because I find historically that on any work-related golf trip, I'm usually pretty crappy, because there's one part of my brain that is taking notes figuratively, if I'm not doing so literally, about a certain hole or a certain type of grass or what somebody told me, that I'm just 
just not fully focused on the golf game. But if you're not out there taking mental snapshots of the opportunity to see these different parts of the world, and I consider it a, a, not just a pleasure but also a privilege to be able to go on these trips, if you're not taking a little piece of that landscape with you, that at some point in your life you can refer back to and say, wow, like I actually I had a chance I had a chance to go there under the auspices of work and I did work and hopefully I did a great job, but I actually had a chance to be there, man. So sometimes whether it be Ireland, trips to Mexico, whether it be any of the articles that we've done, I like to think, you know what, that is such a beautiful place and I got a chance to be there and hopefully I got a chance to experience it and hopefully I appreciated it and we'll remember for a long darn time. So earlier this year, I got to go to the Big Island of Hawaii to work on some stories. And I was really only there for five days. There was pretty much two full travel days involved. And I didn't really have much free time. And I just remember um, on the flight home, I was thinking, man, I'd like to go back there when I don't have to work. It's like work got in the way of a good vacation or something. But with all seriousness, what's a place you've been to to tell a story or work on a project that you would like to go back to where there's no work involved? Um, oh, that's, oh, that's a great question, Guy. I hesitate to refer back to Ireland because I just uh, spun that long story. Um, but I could see that being a place uh, where if you went like... Uh, I'd love to be able to go there with my dad. Just turned 71 today, but we still play a lot of golf together, and we have our, our match game, and I could see that being a special place to, um, you know, to go explore these uh, historic courses and then to go out uh, for a drink and dinner. And you see Americans doing that all over the places that we went to in Ireland and going back and having a, a pint and uh, having a whiskey with the locals and, talking about the courses. I would also say that um, it's been a couple of years now, but uh, a trip to uh, Bermuda was something that uh, stuck, to, stuck to my gills for a long time. It was one of those trips, and this will sound like I'm whining, and I'm sure that you can uh, <laughs> you can relate that you go to some trips and, uh, you know, your friends are like, oh, you're so lucky, man, you know. You go to a place, you get to play golf, and they pay for everything. And you're like, yeah, but I mean, it's actually work. And on some of these trips, and I remember this specifically on this Bermuda trip a few years back, I mean, they, they want you to see everything. They want you to see every rock and every restaurant and every course, and they just exhaust you. You know, they got you over there, and so they're going to do everything they can while they got you there, even if a lot of it is stuff you might not cover, you have no interest in covering, you'll never write about it. But it's still part of this endless, ceaseless itinerary of showing you everything they can and telling you all the history of every single thing. And so from the trip to Bermuda, that was one that I would really enjoy, I think, just to go back there uh, just as a civilian, for lack of a better word, because uh, the scene was so interesting and unusual, and the food was incredible, and the people were all boozing all the time and having a great time and they're very colorful and interesting the golf courses uh were also pretty darn cool um they're a little bit tougher than i thought i mean you might not go there for a pure golf trip but you certainly would have the clubs in tow 
Okay, a few last things here. When you're on one of these trips, do you even care about your golf score? I know I can speak from my own experience. It's like, well, if I, the way I can rationalize playing bad golf is, well, I might have played like crap, but I'm going to write a darn good story. How do you feel about your golf game when you go on a trip when it's to, primarily to tell a story? I usually don't even keep score on these. I grab a scorecard, and I just try to – I mean, granted – Every other time I play golf, whether that be going home to Minnesota, whether that be on a golf uh, weekend uh, with buddies here in the desert, I always keep score. But on these, maybe for a time I did, but uh, I don't even keep score anymore. I think it just gets in the way of making observations, of doing the best article possible. And, you know, you and I, we've mentioned this a little bit. It matters a lot on these golf trips with whom you're traveling. Uh, there are people out there that are known as, uh, as bad eggs on these trips. And I have learned from personal experience that when you take the job part of it and you get too into the golf and maybe get competitive with the golf, there are people that are so damn serious that they can ruin the whole thing. They can ruin the golf experience. They can ruin the trip experience. Uh, so it was an important lesson. I would say I learned maybe four, five, six years ago, to leave competition out of that equation. Yeah, I had one last year. We were at Medina number 3, and we had a local golf writer, blogger, who wanted to play that course from the tips. So we all played <laughs> Medina number 3 from the tips, and it was like, I don't know, it was one of the most uh, enchantingly delightful, miserable days I've ever had on a golf course, if that makes sense. <laughs> but did it ruin it? No, it was uh, it was okay. kind of just you wanted to see where Sergio hit the shot on number 16, and you kind of want to visualize where um, Webb Simpson shanked his tee shot during the Ryder <laughs> Cup, and there were just so many things, and you wanted to see how it was maintained and some of the challenges that the then superintendent Curtis Tyrell and his team were facing. So it was kind of enchantingly, delightfully miserable, and the miserable part was hitting like <laughs> three woods into every par four, no matter how well you hit the ball or your ball clanking off trees one final thing here judd look ahead to 2019 what are your bold predictions for the year what do you see for the business side of golf and what do you see in the professional game here for the upcoming year as far as the professional game i'm a real proponent of what the pga tour has done uh with the shifts in their schedule um i think that they realized probably too late that bleeding the playoffs into NFL season was just a waste, man. I mean, just not have enough eyeballs that uh, that were watching some of the most important tour golf of the year. So obviously we referenced the 3M Open, how that's part of the schedule change. There are some different tournaments that are mixed in there. We know some of the majors and the players are switched up on the schedule. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of how they get it all wrapped up by Labor Day for this next go-around. I think that's really going to benefit how many people, how many eyeballs they get because it's, you know, it comes to sports and whatnot. It's all about grabbing as many eyeballs as you can, but I think more people are going to watch. Uh, as far as the amateur side of golf, obviously we got some new rules coming into play. I'm a big fan of a lot of the rule changes. I think a lot of the uh, pace of play initiatives are actually going to be aided uh, by some of the rule changes. We'll see if people, I think that... Uh, USDA has done done a good job in extending this information. We'll see what happens if people are like, well, I can take the stick out. I can't take the stick out. Once, 
January 1st, rather, comes around, but I think they've tried their best to, to let people know, yeah, here are some of the big rule changes. Otherwise, you know, we mentioned golf in the desert. I, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to the return of um, the Desert Classic this year. It really is a great historic event. I mentioned the 60th anniversary. I look forward to covering it again. I'm really curious to see what kind of field they get. Uh, there's some players that really should play this event that Tiger Woods has never played it. I mean, obviously, he's not going to play it this year. But, yeah, he's a Southern California guy. I mean, it's been a long time since Ricky Fowler came out to this event. He's from, like, 50 miles away. He should come support this event. I know these guys got all this stuff going on. But I'm a champion of this tournament and all its history um, and, all its, and all its beauty, really. I mean, playing these courses in just the peak season peak condition when a lot of the country is being snowed out or shivering that's what this tournament should be and i hope the players come out to support that Uh, and then it rolls around to uh, the early spring of course we got the annual a and a inspiration golf's first major championship takes place also in our backyard and year by year we've seen the ladies just get deeper and deeper in the talent of their field Um, also a pleasure to cover that event I think that I feel like they're doing all right. I'd like to see more attendance numbers come to that. It is a major championship, and usually the Thursday and Friday of that event, to be perfectly candid, can be a little tumbleweedy for my taste. But the players are so good now. These ladies have gotten so good. The fields have gotten so deep that there really are 20, 30, 40 different women that could come and grab that first major championship. So I look forward to seeing what they were doing. And candidly helping them, trying to help them continue to grow that event because it is a premier. Talk about the Desert Classic, probably the most famous group in golf history uh, played in that event. There was a group with Gerald Ford, Bill Clinton, Bob Hope, the older George Bush, and oh, by the way, Scott Hoke played with them. So could you imagine following <laughs> that group around at Bermuda Dunes? I mean, that, talk about history on the golf course. My uh, friend and colleague, Larry Bohannon, uh, we both know who he is. He's been the Desert Suns golf writer since 1986. I believe he refers to that round by Scott Hoke, whom I think I think he shot like one under par. Obviously, for these tournaments, uh, for the tournament and the, the courses out here, you know they go and you're supposed to shoot like 63, 64 at the Birdie Fest. But I think Larry considers that the greatest round ever played in the 60 years of this event, given all the cameras that were on them. One more thing, Judd. Where, where can people go if they want to? follow your work beyond the pages of golf course industry and they can also go somewhere to listen to your work too uh yes sir uh i guess last things first um uh, proud to co-host a, a radio program called the press box i do that with my friend my writing colleague and my radio co-host mr matt mckay uh, we do that from four to five specific time on weekdays on espn 103.9 FM in Palm Springs. Uh, we talk a lot of golf on the show. Uh, proud to have a lot of golf sponsors, whether that be the tournaments I reference. And we have a lot of uh, golfers uh, that come on the show, uh, talk about uh, competitions, talk about uh, tournaments, and so forth. Um, and beyond that, I keep my own website. Uh, it's just my name, judspicer.com, and uh, I post all of my work uh, on the current events page.
Well, this was a different podcast for us. I don't really get to talk writer to writer, so this was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for taking so much time to join us on the podcast, and thanks for your contributions to golf course industry this year, and we look forward to seeing your work on our pages in 2019. I appreciate you having me on, Guy, and I thank you again for the opportunities you've given me with 